Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Empowered Living, with a message entitled, Dead in Sins. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are many things in life that are hopeless were it not for God. Death is one of those things. Many of you have experienced death. Of course, I don't mean your own death, but the death of a parent or the death of a spouse. Some of you have stood at the graveside of a son or a daughter and grieved and felt pain in a way you never thought possible. You've wondered if you could ever be happy again or even if you want to be happy again. See, death is a monster. Death is a terrible enemy of the human race, and he haunts our every step. The reality of death shapes our entire lives. We're studying Ephesians, which, as we've seen, is an invitation for believers to consider their vast resources in Christ. When we come to Ephesians 2, Paul takes a step back. If you're really going to consider your vast resources in Christ, well, we're going to have to take a step backward and consider what we were before we came to Christ. All we experience on this earth goes from life to death. Every day we live, we become more familiar with death because death who hunts us is now one step closer to finding his prey. But one day, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood at the tomb of a man named Lazarus. And when Jesus arrived, Lazarus had already been placed into his tomb four days earlier. Because there was no embalming and because of the hot climate, his body had already begun to decay. His sisters Mary and Martha had been weeping. And that day, Jesus demanded that the stone over the entrance of the tomb be removed. And as they did, the powerful odor of death and the decay of human remains shot in a nauseating fashion from the tomb. And at that incredible place of human misery, Jesus raised his voice and shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he did. Wrapped in grave clothes, stumbling as he came forth, the event was incredible. It was stunning. It was liberating. But what that event meant was even harder to grasp. Jesus put it this way in John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Lazarus went from death to life. It was against the natural order of things. That's what conversion is. But before we talk about conversion, we need to take the time as Paul does and describe our condition just like Lazarus as he was dying the condition of living in the valley of the shadow of death. So let's take some time and examine the enormous tragedy of the human condition. That is, on this side of the fall, let's consider what it is to live life outside of Christ. Today's exercise is not only good for those who came to Christ later in life. It is also of great value to those who came to Christ in childhood. You need, just like others, to consider what life outside of Christ is like. It's an enormous tragedy. Now, Ephesians does not tell us everything the Bible tells us about the human condition. Of course, there is more to humanity than Ephesians 2. You know, for instance, human beings are image bearers of God. The Bible presents a wonderful picture of what it means to be human. Human beings have amazing capabilities, all inherited from our Creator. We have outstanding intellectual abilities that allow us to solve remarkable problems. We have the ability to create. We can send people to the moon. We can create technology that heals diseases. We're able to problem solve. But human beings are also relational, created for community, just like God, who is triune. We have an incredible ability to show love and kindness to others. We're spiritual, 
And there is within every human being an impulse placed within us by the hand of God, which is the impulse to worship our Creator. But Ephesians 2 teaches us that we also have an overwhelming handicap, which overshadows all things we do. The Bible calls it sin. And sin is a terminal disease. It's cancer of the soul. It's incurable. It's non-reversible. It never goes into remission. It's progressive. It's pervasive. Its effects touch every single aspect of our humanity. Nothing of what makes us human remains untouched by sin, whether it's in our mind, our emotions, or our impulse to worship. Everything has been tainted by the corrosive effects of sin. So let's read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, I want you to notice several things about our text. First of all, Paul is writing to believers. He's reminding them of what they once were. Within that, there is hope. Something new has occurred. Secondly, I want you to notice the personal pronouns in the text. He begins in verse 1 by using the word you, and then in verse 3, he begins with the phrase, all of us. This text intends to make a statement about the universal condition of humanity. See, our text is not intended to give us a picture of, you know, some decadent, primitive tribe of headhunters somewhere or some degraded segment of our society. Uh, How we might have wished that he was only talking about, you know, terrorists who blow up buildings and about them alone. Instead, the entire statement is to be understood universally. It's our story. Our text teaches us that every single person is dead in sin. Let's unpack that. First of all, let's return to the image of death. Several years ago, I received a phone call from the hospital. The voice on the other end of the line said, please come quickly, Jake is dying. Jake had cancer and I promised to be there, if at all possible, when he died. I quickly gave some instructions to my secretary. I drove to the hospital. I arrived with his family around the bed and as I looked down, I could see he was already gone. I had imagined holding his hand and commending his body to the God who made him. But now, of course, there was no point. What had just happened to Jake couldn't be reversed. He would not feel my hand or hear my voice or know my presence. He was dead. Death, if you don't know it, well, death is permanent. You don't try death out for a while just to see if you like it. You can't say of death, oh, that's horrible. I think I'll be alive instead. Death has nothing to do with the human will. Just because you're determined to resist death, well, that's not going to help you in the end. Death will have the last word. You won't. When the Bible says that we're dead in sin, it intends to teach us that we can't say that we really don't like being sinners, and so we're going to stop. See, the point of this passage is to teach us there's a permanent condition in our souls. It has nothing to do with your will. You're dead in sin. You're dead to God. You're dead to righteousness. You might say, look, I want God. But that's not open for you. Your will is powerless against this. The problem with the human condition is not that we're sinners or that we sin on occasion. I wish it were that easy. We might even think it is that easy. See, I hear some people say, well, we all make mistakes. In other words, sin's like slipping up. It's like the errors we make. People pretend when they sin, well, that's not the real me. And I sometimes sin, but that's not me. But no, that is who you are 
Our problem is not that we sin. It's that we are in sin. We're sinners by nature. Let me illustrate. Some 3,000 years ago, King David saw a naked woman bathing on top of the flat roof of her house. He called her to his palace. He slept with her. He got her pregnant. He murdered her husband. He covered up his crime, and then he married her. When David was finally confronted with his crimes by a prophet of God, David was truly remorseful. But rather than saying, I don't know what came over me, or, you know, that's what happens when the absolute power of the monarchy corrupts me, or even, man, did I slip up or sin this time. He said something very different. He said what was written in Psalm 51, verse 5. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I never known a moment without sin. Every single one of us was born sinful. Once you and I recognize that, we're going to see ourselves differently. I remember as a young boy, I loved to hunt birds. I missed more often than I hit anything, but later as a Christian, I came to a conclusion about all my activities. I came to the conclusion that as a boy, I loved to kill. It wasn't just that. I mean, what motivated my love of killing birds was my hatred of God's creation. I killed birds because I hated God. Do you think I'm being too hard on myself? Do you think I was just a, you know, a farm kid with a gun and, you know, that's what kids do? I'm just blowing this way out of proportion? I think not. You know, in his book, The Confessions, one of the great books of Christian history, St. Augustine, tells of what seems to have been a harmless boyhood prank. He was then 16 years old when he and his friends came upon a pear tree. They picked all the pears and they threw them against a wall. And later as a believer, he looked back on that act and he concluded that he saw within that act the seeds of his own spiritual death. Listen to what he said, and I'm reading from The Confessions. Those pears were beautiful, but it was not they for which my miserable soul lusted. I had better ones available, but I gathered those simply in order to steal. For once gathered, I threw them away, eating from them wickedness alone, which I gladly enjoyed. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. I wonder how many of us can see that about ourselves what God calls our actions and what we call them is different. We claim we have many needs and wants and we're struggling to be generous with a tight budget. God calls it greed. 
We claim to just appreciate a beautiful woman with whom we playfully flirt. God calls it lust and adultery in the heart. We spend everything on ourselves calling it the good life. God calls it neglect of the poor. We become angry with the stupidity of others. God calls it the spirit of murder. We're dead in this stuff. We're born into sin from the time we were little children in our high chairs, where we threw the peas onto the floor and shouted no, to the time we walked out on our wife and kids, we've been spiritually dead. It's a cancer of the soul. Now, I want you to notice verse one. The passage uses two terms. The first is the word trespasses. Other translations use the word transgressions. It means to trespass on territory not our own. It means to cross a known boundary or to deviate from the right path. It refers to active human wrongdoing. It means willful rebellion. And the second word is the word sins. It means to miss the mark or to fall short of a standard. I want you to imagine aiming a rifle at a target and missing. This word is passive. It simply means to fail. Put together, these two words teach us that every single person embarks on a pathway marked by rebellion against God and failure to meet the righteous laws that God demands of us. The key here is found in the beginning of verse 2. It says, of sin and of trespasses, it says to Christians, in which you once walked. Other translations say, in which you formerly walked. This is the pathway of our lives, and the image is striking. It's the pathway or the walk of the living dead. Those who walk along this pathway are alienated from intimacy with God and the influence of his spirit. Psalm 59, 1-2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, in this condition, you can cry out to God day and night, and he simply will not respond. Your death is irreversible. The problem many people have with this is that it doesn't seem to square with the facts of everyday life. See, lots of people who make no profession of Christ appear to live a very much better life. They seem to be alive. They enjoy life. They sometimes do good things, better things than people who claim to be in Christ. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that every single person has overwhelming pressures that shape their individual walk with death. According to verse 2 to 3a, look at it again in which you formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, this passage now places the influences that shape the soul of an individual who's dead in sin. The influences do not come from God. Rather, they come from three sources. And the first source is the pressures of the surrounding social value system. That's a reference to following the course of this world. Our culture trains us as to what's important. What most of us are unaware of is how mindless we are. We accept what comes from our society almost as if we didn't have a mind of our own. If our culture teaches us little about God, we tend to think little about God. If it teaches us much about God, we think much about God. If our culture teaches us that God's harsh and cruel, we think of him as vindictive, and we're even ready to go to war for him. If our culture teaches us that there are many gods or that God rules the world by fate, that's how we speak. We speak about luck. 
Talk to someone about God or about community, about values. Compare that with your own views and you'll find out that your culture has shaped who we are and what we think. Watch those people on television who stand before an audience of radicals and proclaim death to the infidels. If you had grown up in the same environment, that would be you. So that would be your kids as well. As it is, our world trains us to believe that success lies in our jobs and in money rather than God. Why do you think that and struggle with that? Well, our society has taught you that. You didn't come up with that on your own. That's the first source of influence. Being dead to God, we're alive to whatever influences our world holds. That's the first pressure point. Now then, here's the second influence that shapes your soul. It consists of the pressures of the real and evil satanic realm. Several times now in our study of Ephesians, we've noticed the evil powers of an unseen world. We'll see that when we study Ephesians 6 verse 12. Paul will there warn us that we struggle against forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That, of course, does not mean that everyone outside of Christ is demon-possessed. Far from it. Demon possession is, however, the ultimate expression of a pressure that bears down on every life. There's a great unseen realm dominated by Satan and his host of demons. They bring great pressure to bear upon every unsaved soul. And then there's a third source of pressure. This is the pressure of self-centered and destructive human nature. The Bible calls this the flesh. And if you use an NIV, it translates it as the lower nature. You know, there's a part of human nature that regularly overwhelms our will. It's dominated by cravings and passions and appetites, desires. There's not one human being that has not said at some point in time, I tried to do right and my passions overwhelmed me. I remember it's a long time ago now, but I remember watching the interview with Ted Bundy, the serial murderer. He was being interviewed on the night before he was executed. He told of how he determined he was never going to rape and murder again. And then the urging in his flesh began to grow. Horrible condition. Scary thought is, who can't identify with some urge that's greater than our will? And so this walk of death comes with three overpowering influences. And interestingly enough, that in these verses, the pronoun you and we, well, they're not identified with those three forces. We were dead to God and free from his influence. Instead, we became slaves to these three influences. And these influences make us worse than we would have been by nature. That's why Paul reaches the conclusion that he does. And I hope you see the conclusion. Every single person by nature is an object of God's wrath. Look again at the very last part of verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The wrath of God does not mean that God flies off the handle. It's a reference to a God who judges us according to our sins, finds us wanting. This judgment is personal, it's overwhelming, and it's our natural condition. According to Scripture, every human being deserves wrath and damnation. In our day, this is very controversial. By nature, the children of wrath. Most of us reject this outright can't be true. You know, I had a conversation recently with someone who had a close loved one who was in the process of dying. And after we talked for some time, I asked my friend if he had a chance to share the gospel with his loved one. You see, I knew that he had rejected the gospel years earlier and in very short order. He, like the rest of mankind, was by nature a child of wrath. It's frightening. Well, the person I was talking to said, no, I've got great news. All's well. I said, that's wonderful. Tell me what happened. And so the man said, You know, I went to spend time with my loved one and I asked him, do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? So I nodded. 
That's a wonderful way to begin his conversation. But the dying loved one told the man, I'm going to heaven. And so said this man, I now know that he's fine. He's going to heaven. And I was deeply saddened. Did you know that in North America, there are far more people who claim they're going to heaven than actually believe in heaven? Everyone comforts their own soul with the words, I'll be okay. Years ago, a very popular preacher used to say, you don't have to tell people they're sinners. They already know that. Well, here's the reality. When the average person is being interviewed, that is in our culture, almost no one thinks they're sinners. They think they're just fine. The culture has taught them that. The demons of hell whisper it into their ears and that measures out well with their own flesh. Children of wrath who think they're going to heaven. And furthermore, says Paul, we're dead in this. That is our permanent condition. Everyone is this by nature. You don't come to terms with what it means to be in Christ until you contemplate, that's what I once was, oh my. To be dead is irreversible. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God can raise the dead. And if you're hearing me for the first time today and you've never come to Christ, please understand the only hope that you have is that one who has power to raise the dead would raise you as well. And you might be hearing Christ speaking to you and you need to respond. You need to say, yes, Lord Jesus, as if you are speaking from the dead, I surrender to you and watch for God can raise even you if you but trust in Christ. That's the good news. Thanks, John. Let me ask you a tough question. Why is it, do you think, we speak so little of being dead in sin about hell or about the wrath of God? And is it important or is it necessary? Well, it's especially necessary because of the culture we live in today. Um, you know, we have a culture that denies inherent sinfulness. Um, and, uh, and because of that, um, you know, we've been born into it. It's kind of like asking a fish uh, what's water like. A um, fish probably doesn't know it's all that he's ever experienced. And the same is true for us today. Uh, you know, we're born in this culture of human potential, of human goodness, of everything else, we're told that we are good and of course we're not bad. So we need to stress afresh how fallen we are. And if we don't stress it, Ben, we'll never see the need of a savior. Jesus is a savior from the ravages of sin. If you're not ravaged by sin or if you don't think you are, how will you ever seek out a savior? Let's stress these things. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Neufeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and, and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.